All right. Well, good morning, church. So good to see all of you. And uh, hey, before I get started, I want to say hello to all of you here in the room. I also want to say hello to everyone who is watching online. And uh, I want to send a warm welcome to the Kyreville campus. Now, this morning, we are in the third part of our four-part sermon series entitled The Gospel-Centered Marriage. But before we jump into that this morning, there's a few things I want to inform you about. The first thing that I want to tell you about is that starting in March, we are starting a five-week sermon series. Um, Essentially, we're going to go through verse by verse through Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So five weeks through Romans 8. And uh, we have entitled the series, Eight, The Greatest Chapter. And the reason why we have entitled the series, The the Greatest Chapter, is for two reasons. One, because most Christians uh, throughout the history of Christendom have described Romans 8 as the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. The, The second reason, though, why we have named the series Uh, the greatest chapter is because when we look at what Romans 8 addresses, Romans 8 addresses so many issues, so many major, major significant topics, Uh, things like assurance and condemnation and prayer and temptation and spiritual growth. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And what I love about Romans 8 is that it addresses many of the issues and many of the questions that Christians have throughout their walk. And so part of the reason why we've named the series The Greatest Chapter is because we genuinely believe um, as a leadership that as we work our way through the greatest chapter in the Bible, as we study it, unpack it, and obey it, um, it could quite possibly result in the greatest chapter of your life as an individual and the greatest chapter of our church corporately. And so that's why we're really excited about that series. So if you have any plans for March, make sure to be here. We hope that you join us. We hope that you invite a friend as we go through this series that's going to prepare us for uh, Holy Week. Essentially, we're going to go all the way up until Holy Week. So looking forward to that. Now, another thing that I want to let you know about, for the past few weeks, we've been working our way through marriage. And, And one of the things that happens when you are addressing a topic and a subject as big as marriage is that there's many questions that come up. And so if there's any questions that you may have or there are certain topics that you want to go deeper into, I want to let you know about a resource that we have. If you go to highpointmemphis.com slash marriage, if you go to that page, uh, on that page, you're going to find several resources to help you either start, uh, strengthen, or save your marriage. Regardless of where you are in the marriage journey, uh, there are resources there for you. So on that page, you're going to find many of the books that I've made reference to. Uh, throughout the series and even some that I haven't made reference to. Uh, And you're also going to find out about many of the ministries that we provide as a church for people who are either looking to start marriage, uh, strengthen marriage, or save marriage. So make sure that you go there and you'll find that information on that page. Uh, The other thing I want you to be aware of is that on February 29th, Saturday, February 29th, uh, we are having a marriage conference and the name of the conference is Beyond Marriage. It's going to be right here at East Memphis. It's going to be a one-day conference. It's going to go from about 9 a.m. to about 1 p.m. There will be child care provided. And so make sure to plan for that. And the website or the page that you want to go to for that is go to highpointmemphis.com slash marriage conference. And you'll see all the information there. And uh, we're looking forward to that. I'll be there and many of our staff will be there. It'll be a time of fellowship and of learning and equipping. And we hope to see you there. So 
those are just some resources that I want to make sure that you are aware of. And so I wanted to start off with that here at the beginning. But like I already mentioned this morning, we are in the third part of our four-part marriage series entitled The Gospel-Centered Marriage. And for those of you who kind of been walking with us and following along in this series, you know that I have given a, a, in light of scripture, a definition of what a gospel-centered marriage is. A gospel-centered marriage is one that models the gospel through continual gospel meditation and gospel motivation. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're kind of annoyed because it's the third time I give you the same definition, but I'll stop giving you the definition when you start actually living it out, okay? So, um, but say it again. A gospel-centered marriage is one that models the gospel through continual gospel meditation and gospel motivation, or another way to look at it, we put it in formula form, uh, a, a gospel-centered marriage essentially is this. It, it's gospel meditation plus gospel motivation which then equals a gospel model. In other words, you can't model something that you haven't meditated on or have been motivated by, okay? So with that definition in mind, our passage this morning uh, comes from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Now, this morning, we are going to look at this passage under three headings. We are going to look at the role of the wife, then we are going to look at the role of the husband, and we're going to conclude by looking at the role of the gospel. Role of the wife, role of the husband, role of the gospel. So I want to begin this morning by looking at the role of the wife. Look what it says in verses 21 through 24. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everyone say reverence for Christ. Then verse 22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, according to this passage, the role of the wife is to submit to her husband. Now, before you walk out or uh, throw something at me, l- let me explain what this means. Let me, let me unpack for you this concept of submission in the Bible. The first thing I need you to see is that submission has always been a part of God's divine plan. It's also always been a human problem. And then in Scripture, we are given specific parameters. So let's look at the plan. The first thing I need you to see is that submission has always been a part of God's plan. The word submission or the word submit in the Greek is a very interesting word. It's a military term, and here's what it means. It means to voluntarily relinquish your own rights. I'm going to say that again. The word submit in the Bible means to voluntarily relinquish your own rights. It's, It's a military term that Paul is using in the, in, in the context of marriage. So here's why this is so important. Submitting has nothing to do with your value or your worth. Remember what we said last week about the idea of a woman being the helper. It doesn't say that the woman is the help. It says that the woman is the helper. And the word there, a helper, is used to describe God, and it has to do with strength. It has to do with power. It has to do with military reinforcement. Okay? So don't miss this. Submission is not about losing honor. 
It's about giving honor. Okay? It's not about losing it. It's not about losing something. It's about giving something. That's the definition of the word submission. Here's what I need you to see about this, though. Submission has always been a part of God's divine plan. And, and we know that for several reasons. One of the reasons we know that is because there is submission in the Trinity. We talked about this last week, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God, and yet they play different roles. The Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Son. It has nothing to do with their value or their worth. It has to do with their roles. That's what submission means. They are willingly relinquishing their own rights. But not only do we see that in the Trinity, we also see that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, you see God bringing up the concept of submission. In the book of James, James says that we are all to submit to God. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that we are all to count others as greater than ourselves. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus says that the greatest among you is the one who serves others. And so we see, don't miss this, submission is not a wife thing. Submission is a Christian thing. Okay? In other words, submission is the disposition of God's kingdom. And one of the reasons why we know that is because in verse 21 of the passage that I read, the reason why verse 21 is so important is because it says submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. That, that word there, submitting, and then right, and if you leave, uh, go to the next verse, verse 22, then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Listen, the reason why you know that submitting has always been a part of God's plan is because when you look at these two verses in the Greek, for one, they're not verses because verse numbers came after in English, but two, the word submission isn't even in verse 22. The word submission is only actually used in verse 21, but because there's no period there, Paul says, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And one of the ways that, an example of that is wives submit to your husbands. So in English, they repeat the word submit for the sake of the reader. But in Greek, the word submit isn't even brought up in verse 22. It's brought up in verse 21. So he's saying everyone submit. And here's an example of what submission looks like. In other words, what you see is that submission has always been a part of God's plan. Always. Okay? Now, the second thing I want you to see is that not only has submission always been a part... Sorry, my contacts bother me. Um, not only has submission always been a part of God's plan, but the other thing is... Now I'm leaking. Uh, but the other thing is, is that submission has always been a human problem. Submission has always been a human problem. My eye is literally like leaking. Sorry. Here's what I mean by uh, it being a human problem. When you look at Genesis chapter 3, one of the things that happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that everything is good. Everything that God creates is good in Genesis chapter 2. And then all of a sudden, everything that's created gets corrupted. I promise I'm not crying. Everything that's created, I'm going to just take this contact off. Sorry, hold on. All right, let's get it. All right, I'm not going to be able to read anything, but it's fine. <laughs> so here's the thing. It's always been a part of God's divine plan 
But what we see is that it's also always been a human problem. What I need you to see is that submission has always been a problem from the beginning. From the beginning. In Genesis 2, everything is good. And what I need you to see is that submission, it comes up before sin enters the world. One of the things that you might be tempted to think is, oh, God came up with submission after sin entered the world. But what you see is that God came up with submission before the fall happened. Okay? Genesis 1 and chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, the way God creates Adam and Eve is intentionally with submission already being a part of his original plan. But then in Genesis chapter 3, everything that was created gets corrupted. And I want you to see here the, the curse that God puts on Eve. It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Everyone knows that part of the curse, right? Any woman that's ever had a kid here, they know that part of the curse. Amen, Amen right? But <laughs> listen to the next part. Verse 16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I don't want you to miss this. Paul says, I mean, uh, God says to Eve in his, in his curse of Eve, he says, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. The word there, desire, in the Hebrew, it literally means to usurp authority, to try to control and manipulate someone. So God says that your curse as a woman is that from here on out, you are going to try to usurp your husband's authority. From here on out, you are going to try to control and manipulate the man that I have given you as a husband. He promises that. And then it says that, but he shall rule over you. And in the Hebrew, that word there, rule, is not a biblical godly ruling. It is an unhealthy authoritarian type rule. So get this. What, Paul is, what God is saying here in, in chapters... Uh, 3 verse 16, God is saying to married people that from this moment onward, women are going to struggle with following and men are going to struggle with leading. It's all right there. Or one commentator put it this way, both feminism and chauvinism were born at the exact same time. They're all right there. Feminism and chauvinism in one verse. Women won't know how to follow and men won't know how to lead. And that is the curse that God puts on Adam and Eve because of their sin. So that just gives you an idea that this issue has been an issue for a long, long time. Submission being a struggle is not a modern day issue. It has been an issue since Genesis chapter 3. But here's the thing. It's not just people in the Bible that struggle with it. One of the most godliest women of the previous generation was Elizabeth Elliot. And Elizabeth Elliot, for those of you who don't know, was the, was the wife of a famous missionary called Jim Elliot who was martyred on the mission field. Elizabeth Elliot, writing on the subject of submission, she says this. I don't submit to my husband because I want to. I don't want to. I don't submit to my husband because I like to. I don't like to. I don't submit to my husband because it makes me feel good. It doesn't make me feel good. I submit to my husband because the scriptures command me to. I do it out of submission to Jesus Christ. So, so what I need you to see is that even for one of the godliest women in our generation, submission was hard. Here's the other thing that she brings up. 
In, in one of her newsletters, she writes, essentially the quote is something like this. She says, submission, what does it look like? Right? And then she answers it like this. She says, in all my years of traveling, whenever a woman has come up to me to ask me a question about submission, her struggle has never been submission to her boss. Her struggle has never been submission to the government. Her struggle has always been submission to her husband. It's always that type of submission that women struggle with, okay? Now, you might be sitting here today, right, and you're a woman, and you're telling me you're, you're a wife, and you're saying, well, you know, I'm all for this whole submission thing, but you just don't know my husband. You don't know him. You don't have to live with him. There is no way that the Apostle Paul was thinking about my husband when he wrote this. <laughs> and essentially what you're saying is if my husband was perfect, I would have no problem with submitting to him. Well, here's how I know that's not true. Because you do have a perfect husband. His name is Jesus. And yet you fail to submit to him every single day. So, the plan, the problem, the last thing I want you to see on this idea of submission is parameters. In this passage, we are given very specific parameters for what submission actually is. Look what it says in verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In this one verse, we are given two very specific parameters for what biblical submission looks like. The reason why I want to give you these parameters is because when I bring up the idea of submission, every woman and every man in this room has an idea of what submission looks like. And that idea, that definition is informed by uh, the culture you grew up in, the generation you were born in, the family you were raised in. And so what I want to make sure I do is I don't just tell you to submit and just keep your idea of what submission is. I want to deconstruct what you think submission is and then reconstruct what the Bible actually says submission is. And there's two things that, that, that this passage says. There are two very specific parameters that we have to be aware of if we are going to submit in a way that results in the glory of God and the good of your marriage. The first thing that I need you to see is that true submission should only be done when God is your ultimate authority and allegiance. Here's what I mean. It says in the passage, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the what? To the Lord. Why is that important? Because here's what it means. It means that one of the ways that you submit to the Lord is by submitting to your husband. It's what God is commanding you to do in light of scripture. But here's the other thing that means, this means, and I, and I would argue this is even more important. What it means is, is that if at any point your husband is leading you in a way that is not consistent with what your heavenly husband says, if your husband is as ever, ever, ever uh, leading you towards sin or sinning against you or forcing you to sin, that is not a time to submit. That is not biblical. You only submit when they are living in light of God's standards, God's authority. So, so in other words, submission doesn't mean unconditional obedience. There is nothing biblical about that at all. 
You have to make sure that what they are saying and what they are doing lines up with God's word and God's will, okay? So if you're being abused or if you're being misled or if you're being told to sin, that is not what submission looks like. You are not required under this passage to submit to that type of leadership. You got that? It's really important. I want to make sure that's clear, okay? So when you look at this idea of, of submitting to the Lord, as submitting to your husbands as to the Lord, here's what this means, though. Don't miss this. What it means is, is if, if you and your husband ever come to a point, a point where there is a disagreement, a major disagreement, there's an impasse, there's a stalemate, and your husband has prayed about it, and your, what your husband wants to do is in light of Scripture, and what he wants to do is for the good of the family, not just his selfish desires. In those moments, what Paul is saying is that the final authority rests with the husband. But here's the thing. That should only happen about three times in your marriage. I want to make that very clear here. My, my wife and I have been married for 10 years. This has only happened twice in all of our years. And one of them was coming here to High Point. I went home and I told her, honey, I think it's time for us to move on. There was some things we were navigating at our old church. And she's like, no. There's no way. Our family is here. We grew up here. We planted a church here. There's no way. So instead of saying, no, you're going to do what I say, woman, what I did was I prayed about it. I read scripture. I sought the Lord. But the more I prayed and the more I sought the will of God, the more convinced I became that not only was it good for me, it was what was good for us. And so we sat down, and after praying and processing, she's like, look, I don't know if this is from the Lord, but I'm going to follow your leadership. And then we started the process, and the Lord brought us here. But what I need you to see is that in 10 years, that's only happened twice. And so if in your marriage you're constantly using this verse once a month, you're not doing it right. Because if both of you are filled with the Spirit and both of you are growing in Christ-likeness and both of you are motivated by the gospel, you should have more in common than different. And so it shouldn't happen as much as you think it happens. Okay? Does that make sense? But here's the other thing. Not only do, do the specific parameters talk about as to the Lord, but the specific parameters also, what they reveal to us is that submission, get this, looks different from marriage to marriage. Why? Because he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Don't miss that. So if you're sitting here right now and you're angry that I'm talking about submission, this passage doesn't say that all women should submit to all men. No, no, no. It says, wives, submit to what? To your own husbands. In other words, unless you grew up in a culture where you didn't choose your spouse, unless there was a prearranged marriage in your life, submit to the person that you chose. Submit to the person that you made vows to. That's what it means there. And so if that's true, then what that means is submission should look different from marriage to marriage. Why? If you notice, Paul never under any circumstances gives examples of what submission looks like. Why? 
Because Paul wasn't stupid. <laughs> That's why. Because one of the things that legalistic people like to do is they hear the idea of submission. They're like, well, I'll tell you exactly what submission means. It means the wife cooks, she stays at the house, and she does this, and she does that, and she doesn't talk. And she... The problem with doing that is that you're adding the scripture. Because there's nothing there about what submission looks like. Why? Because Paul knew that every marriage was going to be in a different generation, have a different culture, have different personalities, have different backgrounds, have different strengths, and have di- different weaknesses. And so for, you to, so for Paul to sit there and say, no, this is what submission looks like, it wouldn't have been wise. And so submission looks different from marriage to marriage. So if in your marriage you decide that someone stays home and the other one works, okay. If you decide that someone disciplines and someone doesn't, okay. If you decide that someone manages the money and someone, that's fine. But the worst thing that we can do is be legalistic about something that God's not legalistic about. Submission looks different from marriage to marriage. And if that's true, then here's what this means. We can't judge other marriages. Because that's what we do, right? Like you get dinner with a couple and you're like, did you see how she talks to him? Oh, my goodness. She wears the pants, the suspenders, the shoes, and the socks. Did you see how he treats her? Oh, my goodness. Man, we judge marriages all the time, but according to this passage, we have no right to judge because submission looks different from marriage to marriage, okay? Here's the last thing I will say to women, and then we will, we will move on. If you're sitting here today and you are a single woman, this is why you need to be very careful with who you marry, when the Bible talks about don't be unequally yoked, it's not because God's trying to like restrict you from great things. It's because whoever you marry, you have to submit to. It's a command. It's not advice. It's a command. And so the reason why you have to be careful with who you marry is because then that's the person that you're going to have to submit to for the rest of your life. And so one of the things that happens with single women, Christian single women, is they lower their standards and they, they choose people based on partial attraction, not comprehensive attraction. And so you make a decision based on them being cute or them having a job or them talking to you. <laughs> he talked to me. Must be from God. <laughs> Listen, don't ever make a decision based on characteristics that are going to diminish over time. If he's cute right now, he's not going to be cute when he's 50. (laughs) Things will sag. (laughs) That's the problem. If you make a decision based on things that are only short term, a marriage can't be built on that. Choose an individual who has characteristics that are going to get better over time. Please, women, I'm begging you. Remember this when you're making a decision on who you're going to marry. I heard a quote this week, and here's what they said. The only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. The only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. So that's the role of the wife. 
The next thing we see is we see the role of the husband. Look what it says in verses 25 through 31. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, according to this passage, the role of the husband is to love his wife. Now, you would think that it would be to lead his wife, because her role is to submit, right? So you would think that the role of the husband is to lead his wife. No, no, no. It says that the role of the husband is to love his wife, okay? So, so let's unpack a little bit what type of love Paul is calling us to display as husbands. The first thing I need you to see is that this love is an unconditional love. It's an unconditional love. Well, what do I mean by that? Look what it says um, in, in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives. Now, the Greek word there for love is not the word that many of us would expect. Because he's talking about marriage, you would think that the Greek word that's used there is the Greek word eros, which is romantic love. But that's not the type of love he's describing here. The type of love that he's describing here is agape love which is the type of love that God shows us. It is one way, unconditional love based on perceived value, not actual value. We are to love our wives the way God loves us. Now, this would have been groundbreaking and earth-shattering and paradigm-breaking in those days because in the Greco-Roman society that Paul was writing in, the way marriages were set up, uh, wives had all these obligations towards their husbands and husbands had no obligation towards their wives. So for Paul to show up and say, men, husbands, you are to love your wife, agape, the way Christ loved the church, he is turning the culture on its head. This was a very significant thing that Paul was saying to these people. Paul says that our love must be an unconditional, one-way Love based on perceived value, not actual value, agape love. That's the type of love that is required. So, so what does that mean? What does unconditional love mean? Here's what it means. I already mentioned this a little bit, but I want to unpack this. It means that your primary role as your husband, as a husband, don't miss this, is not to lead, it's to love. So for those of you who were, uh, during the first point when I was talking to wives, for those of you who were sitting here thinking, you tell them, Pastor Will, you tell them. She's got to submit. I've been trying to tell her that for years now. Put her in her place. The problem with that is that your primary role isn't to lead, it's to love. You are to love your wife, Okay? But the other thing that unconditional love means, and don't miss this, it means that you are to love your wife even when she is unlovable. 
Someone's with me. Even when she is unlovable. It's not a type of love that she must earn. It's a type of love that you show regardless. Here's the other thing it means. Don't miss this, guys. Because guys are really, really good at this. It doesn't just mean that you show her love on your anniversary and on Valentine's Day. Okay? It also, get this, it also doesn't, because here's what guys love to do. It doesn't just mean that you show her love on the day that the, the burglar comes in and you have to die for her. Like, a girl, here's the thing. If someone ever broke in, I got you. I'm going I'm to sacrifice myself to you and for you. You know what she wants? Sacrifice for her on a daily basis. Not on the, the, the off chance that someone breaks into your house. Okay? Anybody can do that. That's what it means to be sacrificial. I mean, to be unconditional in your love. And here's the other thing that it means. Unconditional love means that a man cannot fall out of love. Don't miss this. Because there are many marriages that end because of that. A husband goes up to the wife and says, honey, the, the spark is gone. You're just not who I thought you were. It's not, it's not the same anymore. Sorry. No, no. According to this passage, love is not a feeling that you conjure up. It's a commitment that you make. And that's why C.S. Lewis brings up the idea that at the end of the day, I quote Lewis a lot because I read a lot. He's my favorite author. But Lewis says that falling in love is like jumping into a pool. Anybody can do that. Gravity takes over. You just jump in. He says staying in love requires you to swim. Everybody likes the falling part. No one likes the swimming part. That's what unconditional love means. You cannot fall out of love. You cannot lose the spark. Your soulmate is whoever you put a ring on. Soulmates aren't biblical. Your soulmate, if there is such a thing, is whoever you committed to. It's whoever you made vows to. And the reason why the grass looks so much greener on the other side of the fence is because you haven't watered yours in 10 years. Unconditional. The second thing that we see this love is, is that this love is sacrificial. Sacrificial. Go back to verse 25. It says that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, in order for Jesus to love the church, he had to sacrifice himself. So if you go in the marriage as a guy and you're like, man, I can't wait to marry someone who's not going to change me and just accept me the way I am and just do everything I want and just be a booty call uh, twice a, uh, a week. That's not biblical. Because to truly love, you must have a sacrificial love. You must be giving of yourself daily. You must be dying to yourself daily. There is a cost to marriage. Your, your hobbies and your interests and your needs and your wants and your weekends no longer belong to you. They all must be sacrificed for the good of your spouse. If you're not willing to do that, that's fine. Just don't get married then. But don't get married and then try to change what God said. See, if I buy a product and the product isn't working, I don't just keep figuring out. I read the owner's manual. And I try to figure out what was the owner's intention for this product. Don't get in the marriage and then try to make it whatever you want it to be. We are to be sacrificial. Here's what sacrificial love means. 
It means that you are to love your wife, get this, based on how she perceives love, not the way you perceive love. So if your idea of love is to be left alone for a weekend so you can go out and with your buddies or go fishing or whatever you do for fun, you can't just assume that that's her idea of love. You have to love them based on what they perceive as loving. That's why the love languages thing is so important. Knowing how they receive love is very important. I can tell you that in the 10 years that Lily and I have been married, in the five years we were dating before that, when we first started dating and then first got married, for a long time, her love language was words of affirmation. And then as the, Lord, the Lord's gift put us in the ministry and as we have, have kids, with the busyness of life, her love language has changed from words of affirmation to acts of service. Not only must I study her from the beginning, but I should see how she changes over time and understand that the way she receives love in this season of life is acts of service. Just so you know, mine's been touched since the beginning, okay? I'm a, and I, I never gonna change. But anyways, uh, but that's a whole other sermon. Um, so you have to love them based on their, the way they perceive love. You don't get to choose that. They choose that. Okay? And the last thing is that this love is a sanctifying love. Here's what it, what it let, let me uh, read the next verse 26. It says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So don't miss this. The love that you are to show your wife is a sanctifying love. The word there, sanctify in the Greek, it means to become like Jesus. It means to set someone or something apart for the use of God. In other words, one of the ways that you are called to love your wife, if you are a husband, is you are to sanctify her and help her to become more like Jesus. You are to help her be set apart for the things of God. So, so don't miss this. What it means is that one of the primary influences in your wife's spiritual growth is you. You're not the only influence. God expects her to read her own Bible. God expects her to, to come to church and be grow, grow. But one of the primary influences in your wife's spiritual growth is you. And one day you will be held accountable for the work that you've done in sanctifying your wife. You will be held accountable for that. That is part of the responsibility. That's why, that's why women can so easily be like, man, why do I get to be the one that uh, leads and loves? Why, can't I, why, why do I got to be the one that submits? Well, here's the thing about submitting or, or leading and loving. For years in my min, in ministry, I was number three, number four, number five in the organization. And I remember when I used to be in those places, I used to look up at the guys leading the organization and judge them. That, man, they got it easy. Man, they got, man, I got to submit. But man, they got it easy. They, don't have, they have no idea what it's like to be down here. Well, guess what? Now I'm the guy at the top. And I'm realizing that it's harder. Because I'm going to be the one that's held accountable for how this organization goes, for how this church is led. That's why I don't get the whole Southern culture about celebrity pastor. Because in my mind, all lead pastor means is that I'm going to be the first one that's held accountable. So before you start going, oh, they got the easy route. You need to understand what sanctifying and leading and actually preparing your spouse for Jesus actually means. You are the primary, influ one of the primary influencers in her growth. 
So what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, one of the things it means is that you pray for her and pray with her regularly. Another thing it means is that you check up on her because there's nothing to pray about if you don't know what's going on in her life. And one of the things that Lily and I have been doing for several years now is we, we, we heard this at a marriage conference was once, and, and the, the, the speaker talked about daily delays and weekly withdrawals. So daily delays, here's what a daily delay looks like. When I come into my house from a busy day at work and my girls start running up to me to get my attention, I stiff arm them, stiff, kick them out of the way, stiff them, <laughs> trip them, right? I go straight to my wife because I want my, my daughters to see that my primary priority is their mother. I look my wife in the eye and I ask her, how was your day? Let her tell me how her day went. Then she asks me, how was your day? I tell her how my day went. That is a daily delay. Every day we do the exact same thing. Here's why that's so important. Because if you do daily delays right, then it, when it comes to the weekly withdrawals, which is a date night, and Lily, either do, Lily and I either do date nights or we do uh, lunch. So I, I save one lunch during the week and then we go to lunch while the girls are at school. When we do our weekly withdrawals, since we've done all the daily delays, our date time is not filled up with talks about children or ministry or bills or any of that. Because a lot of couples don't do the daily delay time. When they go to their dates, they're just talking about the stuff they should have been talking about during the week. And so then when we sit down, what I do is uh, there's this, this worksheet that I came across a long time ago. It's called the RPMs. And you check on yourself relationally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. When Lily and I go on dates, as boring as this sounds, I check to see how she's doing in those four areas. I ask her the questions, and she tells me how she is. So then later on when I pray for her, I know exactly how to pray for her. Listen, no one should know how your wife is doing spiritually more than you. Not her accountability partner, not her mom or dad, remember, leave and cleave. Uh, not her Bible study. You should be the person that is most aware of how your wife is doing. Here's the thing about this worksheet. I don't know if you guys have ever played the game Minesweeper before. The one on the old desktops. The, 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 the game Minesweeper, you click on a little square. And sometimes you click on a square and it only opens up one square. And sometimes you click on a square and it opens up like seven squares. And then sometimes you click on a square and it all blows up. These questions are like Minesweeper. Sometimes you ask something and you're like, hmm, not as much as I thought it was going to be. Sometimes you ask something and it opens up a bunch of questions. And then sometimes you ask a question and it all blows up. But here's the good thing. The good thing is you're mentally prepared for things to blow up just in case. So you're having a conversation and conflict in a controlled setting instead of it unexpectedly showing up when you're watching Netflix later that night. Okay? So one of the resources that we have at, on that page, if you go to it, uh, highpointmemphis.com slash marriage, is that sheet. Print it out, screenshot it, and use it when you go on dates with your wife. You're welcome. <laughs> the last thing that I want you to see, though, in the sanctifying love, is that you one day, get this, don't miss this, you one day are going to have to present your spouse to the ultimate bridegroom. In other words, like John the Baptist says, he's the best man, and his job is to elevate the bridegroom. That's your role as a husband. You are the best man, and the bridegroom is Jesus, and you have a long-term view of your marriage. You are looking at marriage long-term because you are preparing your wife so that she is holy and unblemished and blameless for the day that she stands before her ultimate spouse. That is your job. But what I need you to know is this. If you are filled with the Spirit, if you are centered around the gospel, 
Here's the good news. The good news is that as you walk with your wife, submission and loving shouldn't be that hard. The longer, anyone who's been married here first and even a period of time, knows that the longer you walk together, the more you both become like Jesus, the more you are both filled with the Spirit, those things go from being duties to being delights. That's my prayer for you. So, we've seen the role of the wife. We've seen the role of the husband. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the role of the gospel. The role of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. The role of the wife is very important. The role of the husband is very important. But I would argue that the most crucial role played in a good marriage is the role of the gospel. Here's why. Don't miss this. As one author put it, he said that the two biggest problems in marriage, the two greatest problems in marriage are the husband and the wife. And so here's what happens. A lot of people will teach and preach Ephesians chapter 5. And never, and tell you about the role of the wife and the role of the husband and never tell you about the role of the gospel. Well, here's the problem with that. When they do that, they're giving you all the requirements and none of the resources. They're giving you all of the standards and none of the sources. They're giving you all the imperatives and none of the indicatives. And they're giving you a religious do instead of a gospel done. And so what happens is these people end up being crushed Because now they're trying to do this very difficult thing in their own strength. Something that was never meant to be done in their own strength. And so they end up crushing people with Ephesians 5 instead of equipping and elevating people with Ephesians 5. The role of the gospel is the most important role when it comes to your marriage. And in this passage, we are given three very specific very important gospel resources that we need to tap into if we are going to live up to the calling that Paul is giving us here. The first resource, the first gospel resource is the father's purpose. The second resource is the son's passion. And the third resource is the spirit's power. The first resource that I want you to see is the father's purpose. Look what it says um, in verse uh, 21. No, 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 sorry. Never mind. Let me put it in verse Suppose we up to verse 32. Thank you. It says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, so listen, guys, don't miss this. The Father gives you the purpose for what marriage is. In other words, in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates marriage, he did so knowing that marriage, the purpose of marriage, was to present The purpose of marriage was to reveal and to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the purpose of marriage has already been given. You don't have the right to determine what the purpose of marriage is. Because the purpose of marriage has already been given. It's to reveal the mystery of the gospel. But what many of us do is we make what something, something that's already a mystery, even more of a mystery, because we give it a purpose that God didn't give it. And so you get in a fight with your wife and you're like, man, what a mystery. (laughs) The mystery is that you tried to give a different purpose to something that God's already given his purpose for. Guys, don't miss that. That's what that means. That that, that, that there's a long-term perspective. Listen, your marriage is to serve as a signpost. 
You know what a signpost is, right? Like if we're all on a trip and we're heading to New York, for example, if right when we're about to get to New York, let's say we're 20 miles out, I find a sign that says New York on it, 20 miles. I pull the car over and say, we made it. Take your stuff out. We made it. No, 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 we didn't make it. That's not New York. That is a sign that points you to New York. And one of the things that happens is that in Christianity, we have made marriage an idol. We have made marriage ultimate. But our marriage isn't ultimate. Our marriages are penultimate. And it points us to the ultimate marriage, which is the marriage between Jesus and the church. That's what we see. That the purpose has already been determined by God. One of the things that I do when I, when I do a wedding is when I see the bride coming down the aisle, I get super emotional because I think about the day that my, my bride came down the aisle. But in light of this passage, one of the things that the Lord has convicted me of is that the reason why I should get emotional is not just because I'm thinking about my bride coming down the aisle. I'm not just looking back to our wedding. I should be looking forward to the wedding. Because the purpose of marriage is the relationship between Jesus and the church. So the first resource that we are given is we are given the Father's purpose. Get this. The second resource that we are given, and I would argue this is probably the most important resource, is we are given the Son's passion. In verse 21, look what it says. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word reverence there means awe. It means respect. It means worship. In other words, what is being argued here is that the only way that we are ever going to be able to submit to one another is when we are motivated by reverence for Christ. I have to be overwhelmed with the awe, with the worship, with the respect for Jesus. And the more I do that, I will then result in being the spouse that God is calling me to be. But when he says to, to reverence for Christ, he's not just talking about the person of Jesus. He's talking about the passion of Jesus. He's not just talking about the person of Jesus. He's talking about the work of Jesus. I can't just meditate on Jesus as an example. I have to meditate on Jesus as my savior. I have to meditate not just on the person, but on the passion. I need to meditate. I need to focus. I need to contemplate the beauty and the majesty of his finished work on the cross. That's what he says, that, that, that the passion of Jesus is one of the reasons, one of the motives that we are given to love. Listen, listen. Once you understand how much Jesus loved you, once you understand how much Jesus gave you, once you understand how much Jesus pursued you, once you understand how much Jesus forgave you, once you understand that, it changes how you do marriage. It changes it because now, once you understand that, you, you, you love different, you, you serve different, you pursue different, you forgive different. The reason why you're not having the, a gospel-centered marriage is because you're not focusing on the gospel. If there's no meditation, there's no motivation, so there's no modeling. That's what we see. And one of the things that the gospel does that I absolutely love that changes the way you do marriage is that if the gospel is true, then the gospel, on the one hand, allows you to be brutally honest, but on the other hand, it allows you to be biblically hopeful. Think about this. On the one hand, you can be brutally honest because of sin, but on the other hand, you can be biblically hopeful because of your Savior. So when you go into marriage, now you aren't shocked when your wife lets you down. You aren't shocked when they sin. You aren't shocked when they don't, don't fill you up. You can be brutally honest and yet biblically Hopeful. 
And the reason why you can be biblically hopeful is because once you understand that Jesus has loved you and accepted you and approved of you and forgiven you, once you understand that, you can go to your wife and know, you're not supposed to save me because Jesus already did. You're not supposed to complete me because Jesus already did. The reason why I can give you everything I have is because Jesus has given me everything that I need. Man, come on, church, man. I'm up here by myself, man. I'm going to start preaching at Collierville, man. East Memphis is dead today. I'm preaching better than you're responding, man. Listen. The son's passion. The son's passion is what helps you be the marriage God is calling you to have. It's not just the father's purpose. It's the son's passion. You know, a few years ago, I asked my wife a question. I said, uh, hey, what was it that came through your mind? What went through your mind on the day of our wedding? The, the doors are about to open, and you're about to enter this this auditorium with all these people in it you're about to see me what went through your mind she said two things went through my mind the first thing that went through my mind is I thought to myself everything that I thought mattered in the process really didn't matter all the things that seemed like such a big deal I got to that moment and the doors were about to open and I realized that none of them actually really mattered because I had finally arrived at the wedding day she's like but here's the other thing the other thing that really hit me, she said, is I thought to myself, and this was just my fear and my doubt, I started thinking to myself, is he going to like me? Is he going to accept me? Is he going to find me beautiful? Is he going to think I'm precious? And I think deep down, that's one of the issues and one of the fears that we have when it comes to Jesus. We're scared that one day we're going to stand before Jesus and he's not going to find us beautiful. And he's not going to find us precious. And he's not going to find us acceptable. But here is why that's not true. Here's why Jesus is going to do those things. The reason why Jesus Christ is not going to reject you is because the, 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 the father has already rejected him. The reason why Jesus is not going to turn his back on you is because the father has already turned his back on him. He's already proved his love. He's already loved you and served you and pursued you. And what's crazy about Jesus that makes him different from any other spouse is that when Jesus made his vows to you, he knew you were going to cheat. He knew you were going to neglect him. He knew you were going to turn his back on your back on him. He knew you were going to walk away. And yet at the cross, he still said, I do. He still pursued you. Come on. Come on. That's crazy. He still pursued you. He still loved you. He still served you. He still died for you, knowing exactly what you would do to him. He still did it. Man, when you understand that, it changes how you do marriage. And the last thing we are given is not only are we given the Father's purpose, not only are we given the Son's passion, but we are given the Spirit's power. You know, one of the things that happens right before this passage in verses 15 through about 20, Paul says, do not be filled with drink but instead be filled with the holy spirit then he talks about addressing and singing to one another songs of uh, uh, uh songs and hymns and spiritual songs but, but but here's what's beautiful about that if you look at how it's written in the greek one of the things that people do is they separate the being filled with the spirit part from the marriage part but if you look at it in the greek it's just one sentence paul doesn't want you to separate the two ideas Paul's saying, look, being filled with the Spirit is not a plus, it's a prerequisite in marriage. Being filled with the Spirit is not an accessory, it's a necessity. 
Being filled with the Spirit in your marriage is not a nice addition. It is a crucial foundation. If, if you're not filled with the Spirit, don't try it at home. Don't try this at home if you're not filled with the Spirit. That's what he's saying here. But what I love about this, and don't miss this, for those of you who have more of a charismatic bent, I need you to follow with me here. He says that being filled with the Spirit, the way you know you are filled with the Spirit is not by speaking in tongues or by performing miracles, but by loving your spouse. So, so if you're filled with the Spirit and all it results is in you speaking in tongues and performing miracles and you're not loving and serving your spouse, then you're not reading the right Bible, bro. That's what we see. And then he says that when you understand that you are filled with the Spirit, you start to sing songs, it says. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs. But what scholars say is that the only songs that these people used to sing back then, in the early church, there weren't a lot of songs like we have today. The only songs that they were singing were songs about the gospel. They were gospel songs. You know you are filled with the Spirit when every day the soundtrack that you are listening to is the good news of Jesus. It's the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Listen, if you are walking through life and the only soundtrack that you are listening to is a soundtrack of religion and condemnation and of legalism, then no wonder your marriage is falling apart. But when the soundtrack that you sing because you are filled with the Spirit is one of love and of hope and of grace and of forgiveness, the more you sing that to your soul, the more you will sing that to your spouse. And then and only then will you gladly submit and sacrificially love. Listen, the only way that you are going to be able to live out your role as a wife, the only way you are going to be able to live out your role as a husband is by embracing and resting in the role of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for your word. And God, I pray for the marriages in this room, those that are starting, those that need to be strengthened, and those that need to be saved. I pray that right now that this truth, this message, this, 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 this sermon would speak to their hearts and that whatever needs to happen, that it would happen today. Not tomorrow, not a week from now, not next Valentine's Day, but today. If there are people here who need prayer, I pray that they would come and receive prayer, whether they are married or not, that they would come and receive prayer and that they would take whatever step you're calling them to take. Maybe you're calling people to take a step towards you as their spiritual spouse, to be saved or to be baptized. I pray that today would be the day that happens. But Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that the gospel is sufficient, not just for our marriages, but for our lives. Help us to be a gospel-centered church filled with gospel-centered marriages. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.